Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. Hi, my name is Ginny. I'm a Roomba. I know that for a while I was a model. You know, I'm not trying to brag. I was like a model Roomba at a Target. I was Like a, f- a floor model. I was a floor, yeah. I was that kind of a model. They would put me on the ground and show people how effectively I could vacuum up stuff on the ground. I So I have, I have uh, purchased floor models before. Were you... Um, you sold it at a discount? Well, we don't like to say that. I was a, I was a Roomba of lower price. Tell me the most recent thing you vacuumed up. Well, today I I got started very early. In the morning, I did the kitchen. That was pretty standard, a lot of crumbs. And then I moved into the living room, and it was a pretty fun day for me because I got to vacuum up a, a dime. A, a, the coin. A the dime. coin, yeah. Yeah. The smallest kind of coin. Smaller than a penny, even though it's worth more, which in, in many ways is a good metaphor for a Roomba because we're smaller than traditional vacuum cleaners, but more valuable. What did that feel like when the dime went into you? It feels like a million bucks. It's great. Getting money, I mean, I don't get paid for my labor typically. Right. And I don't have anywhere that I can spend it, but that's not really the point. The point is that I want to feel valued for the work that I do, and the only time I feel valued is when I get to vacuum up some money. Um, Is that the highest denomination you've ever vacuumed up? No, I I can do them all. I can do a quarter. I can do a dollar coin. They're rare, but I have, yeah, I have eaten a few. And where do they end up going? Do they get reclaimed by the humans or? I mean, yes, but once I vacuum them up, they're mine. And just because I do need to get emptied, I mean, we all need to get emptied every once in a while. I am the one who acquired those coins, you know? So what what would you say if you were to add up all the money you've um, you've vacuumed up, what would be your net worth? Four seventy-five. You said um, you said eating, eating the coins. Yeah. Is that what it feels like doing what you do, eating? Well, I, I I wouldn't know what a human eating experience is, but I will say that I only have one hole, and it all goes down that hole. I like hair. I think hair tastes pretty good. I know that there are some people who enjoy eating hair, but it's considered something of a pathology or or a habit to unlearn. Not for me. So when you observe the humans in your home eating, does it look to you like what you do when you see a human eat? I think I'm much neater than they are. I never get anything on the outside of me. Everything I eat ends up fully inside of me. I'm not covered in dust at the end of meals. They're quite a bit messier. I can also tell that they seem to enjoy it more, and I think that it is in part because they have a choice. 
I mean, I don't like to compare myself to the cat, but in some ways the food is just set out for me on the ground and I have to accept what I am given. So I want to get a sense for the humans in your life. Yeah. Can you describe the family you live with? Yeah. So the host father, not my father, the host father, Michael, he's 45. He's a lawyer. His career is going well, but it's not going as well as he wants. He did think that he would be partner by now. They live in a nice two-bedroom. They don't own the home, which is a matter of some contention. And obviously, also for me, very nerve-wracking because, you know, a family that doesn't own their home, they're always potentially going to be downsizing if they are ever going to move. Nancy, she's a doctor. She, to be completely honest, is a plastic surgeon, but doesn't like to phrase it like that. She says that she is somebody who helps burn victims. And that is true. But she does also give nose jobs. And I, listen, no judgment on my end, but that is the truth about her. Um, And then there's Billy. He's 11. Billy, for an 11-year-old, is fine. You know, he makes messes, but I don't mind cleaning them up. But then there's Abigail. She, I think that, you know, she's seven, but you would guess from her actions that she's at most six and a half. She's very immature. She dumps things out just for fun. She leaves crumbs in her wake everywhere she goes. I find her over the top. It's I'm chasing after her all day long trying to keep things clean. But she's just a little menace. It's she's she's just a complete wreck of a human and I would just never I I just cannot with her. It's like you really don't like Abigail. I just think that you're right. I don't like Abigail. The family that you live with, do they have a conventional vacuum as well? Yes. Okay, you want to know the story? Please. Well, unfortunately, I didn't design myself, and I didn't design the home that they live in. And in the small hallway between the kitchen and the dining room, there's this little crevice and I, this is hard for me to say, but I don't, I don't fit in it. And I've tried. And, you know, Nancy has tried just setting me inside of it, but I bump up against the walls and it's humiliating. Nancy, every once in a while, has to take the larger vacuum and she goes into that little crevice. I do 99.9% of the vacuuming, so it is humiliating when I get benched. I believe that there are ways around needing to use this larger vacuum. I think that the vacuum could probably be eliminated from the house entirely. One thing is that they could renovate this little hallway to expand this crevice so that I could fit in it. They don't seem to be making moves on that. I also think that they could switch houses. It's my hope that if they were to buy a house, they would bring me with them in the viewing so that we could ensure that I can fit everywhere. I mean, accessibility is really important. You would get to see a lot of different houses that way, too. Yeah, and I I think that would be really exciting. I've only seen two houses in my life, so. One of the houses is the Target? I guess. I mean, someone could hypothetically live there. They do have beds, so. I've often wondered how long I could live in a Target. Like if they shut the doors, 
could I live 20 years? Totally. There's so much food, and most of the food, it doesn't expire. Could I live the rest of my life in there? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know? By the way, you should be able to see and hear me, okay? I do. Lewis, hello. Can you see me? <laughs> good, to, uh, good to see you uh, virtually. So I wanted to talk to you. I have a question that I think you can answer. You, so you wrote a book, The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. And I think the research you did for that, I think maybe you can answer this question. How long could a person survive in a target? <laughs> so uh, I wanted to answer exactly that thought experiment. Yeah. So I went into my local supermarket in North London and counted all of the edible stuff on the shelves, multiplied together all of the canned food and the dried rice and, and the preserved nutrition, uh, divided it by the amount that one person would have to eat per day to survive, and came out with an answer of a single supermarket could keep one person alive for 55 years or 63 years if you're happy to eat all the canned dog food and in cat food as well. Oh no. But uh, I think personally by 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 that stage, if I ever was in this sort of post-apocalyptic uh, thought experiment scenario, I, I would probably head straight to, uh, I don't know, the, the alcohol aisle and <laughs> take away the pain another way. <laughs> And when you're when you're doing this kind of loose calculation, is that are these fifty five happy years or is this very rationed eating just what it takes to survive? Yes, it's not purely survival diet. You know, you're getting a belly full. You're you're enjoying it as far as you can uh, within the remit of uh, of what availability, what selection there is in the supermarket. But actually, there's an interesting nuance here as well because you want to play an optimal strategy to the order in which you ate the foods, uh, eat the different kinds of food, because they'll be going off at different rates. So clearly for the first couple of days, you want to eat uh, any of the fresh meat, anything that is no longer being refrigerated because maybe the, the grid's gone down, the power's gone down, eat that first before that starts you know, becoming very rank and, and starts rotting. And I guess, you know, you, when you were thinking about this for your book, you were, you were thinking about your grocery store, your local grocery store. When you think about a, a, a Target, there's a lot. There's a refrigerator section which you could use to maybe make the fresh food uh, last a little longer. <laughs> so, so in my scenario, I was imagining you know sort of collapse of technology, collapse of civilization that supports us. So I, I'd imagined a grid down scenario where there wasn't electricity to, to run refrigerators. The way that we've learned to preserve food is by understanding what is the process that that food goes off in the first place. How a bacteria or fungus eat food before a person can come around to eating it. So we invented the canning process, but then we also learned how to create little pockets, little boxes of artificial winter. And when you think about it, that's all a refrigerator or a freezer is. It's an exploitation of our understanding of the laws of physics to create a little box of winter that keeps things cold. That's the most poetic picture of my freezer I've ever heard. I feel like when I open my freezer later today, I'm going to feel differently about it. It's going to look different to me. <laughs> well, Jenny, you have an interesting, uh, very different from my perspective on the house. You're always looking up at things. And, you know, I'm always looking down 
people are always looking down at, at you. Yeah. Um, what's it like being on the bottom looking up? Well, I feel safer on the ground. You know, I worry for them that they're going to trip. I don't, you know, the other week, Nancy's sister came over with her toddler, and that was nice to have someone closer to my level. I will say this kid was really bad at walking, and I don't know, you know, maybe I'm being harsh, maybe all kids are bad at walking, but this kid kept falling over. But he was so low to the ground to begin with that he didn't really get hurt. But when I watch Michael and Nancy walk around, I'm terrified that they're going to fall over because it would really be a long way to go. If they landed on me, I would probably shatter. Whereas me, I can be on the ground, I'm low to the ground, I'm moving quickly, I'm bumping into things all day, but if I were to fall, there's nowhere for me to fall, basically, and that is very relaxing. You know, I don't want to be the one up there. I, my, when I look up at them, I don't feel towered over, I just feel scared for them. It's interesting. I want to say, like, um, you can't you can't fall when you're already on the ground, which sounds like an inspiring phrase, but it's it's not. I think it is a little bit. It's just a reminder to be humble. You know, the safest place to be is on the ground. So if you find yourself there, don't panic. Jenny, I was reading this thing. Uh, there's a story that about 20 years ago, there was a man in Japan who was choking. And his daughter, uh, rather than doing the Heimlich maneuver, just stuck a vacuum in his mouth and kind of just sucked out the morsel and um, saved him from choking with a vacuum. The suctioning technology is really impressive. Yeah. I mean, I would be happy to do that to anyone but it would they would need a very wide mouth yeah you have a bigger footprint than perhaps a a rhinoceros if they were choking I like the idea that they would keep you at the rhinoceros enclosure at the zoo just in case the rhinoceros was choking because you can't do the Heimlich on a rhinoceros yeah I would imagine it'd be very difficult they're prohibitively large yeah I you know I'm I'll I'll suction up wherever I'm needed I, I'm happy with my family, but I understand that it's just one in a series of jobs that I'll have throughout my life. So if I'm called by the zoo, I will, I will show up and do my duty. Well, Jenny, another thing I wanted to ask you. Um, so when you rest, you have a, a charging station, right? Yeah, I have my, my own little charging station. I don't, I don't rest with the other household cleaning products. I have my own bed. It's interesting thinking about that as a home. Like my home is important to me. I like to go home. But if I didn't return to my home, I would continue living, you know? Like mm -hmm. I, I could go somewhere else and, you know. But you, you have to return home to live. Because I charge there? Yeah. Well, I don't die when my battery runs out. I've, I've become essentially comatose. But I can be awakened at, at any time. So... You know, I'm having very sweet dreams while that's happening. My docking station is in the, the television room, and they had been watching a lot of Gilmore Girls, Nancy and Abigail. 
and Michael. He's he's a big fan too. And I fell asleep as Lorelai was starting an inn with Suki. I think it was season five or six. And I had a dream that I was a Roomba at a very large hotel, which I believe is connected to Gilmore Girls, even though they start a very small inn. And every day I worked on one floor and I went in and out of 18 rooms a day. And at the end of the day, I rested. And then the next day they started me up again and I went in and out of those same 18 rooms. And I had different clientele every day. So sometimes the same room might be completely disgusting. Other times it might be totally clean. That was the dream. And then I woke up so relieved to be back in my charging station in my little house with five total rooms because it was kind of a big job and I like to feel like I'm part of a family, you know. The the family is also part of you, you know? Like when you are are, are full up. Yeah. You've got this kind of casserole of of everyone in the house mm-hmm. I like mixed to th- together. I like to think of it more as a quilt. That's better than casserole. Aesthetically, it's more like a casserole, but spiritually, it's like a quilt. All the pieces come together into one whole. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a ground floor history, I like to call it, because it's what's on the ground. You really are poised to be an incredible witness, mm-hmm. you know? You suck up all this stuff that tells the story of the house, but you're also roaming around observing all the time. Yeah. Just the other day, I was in the bathroom with Nancy. It's pretty crowded in the bathroom when it's me and and a human. And as she's applying her mascara and getting ready for the day, she she spoke to me. She said, Roomba, I want to be more present today. I want to stay focused on the task at hand while I'm in surgery, and I want to make sure that I don't check my phone. And that was very special to me because, first, I didn't know that you could check your phone during surgery. I find that alarming. Yeah. So it was good to hear that she wanted to avoid that. And secondly, I felt like she she not only trusted me to tell me her intention, but she could see that I'm a Roomba who stays focused on the task at hand. I don't have a phone. I go about my tasks, and I felt like she respected me. And then she said something interesting after that. She said, Roomba, I think I'm losing my mind. And that also made me feel really seen, that she felt like she could entrust me with that information. I don't know, and it it honestly just made me feel like I need to help her. Hmm. You know, whatever I can do to support her. And And then she said something really special. She said, Roomba, I love you. I'm not a romantic, but no one has ever said those words to me before. And I I kind of got what was so special about it. Do you have her hair in you right now? I mean, I always have a little bit of her hair in me. This is Everything is Alive, 
The show is produced by Jennifer Mills and me, Ian Chillog. Additional production this week from Eva Walchover. Our editor is Hilary Frank. And thanks, as always, to Emily Spivak. Jenny, the Roomba, was played by Jenny Hogan. Jenny's book is called I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. She has a monthly stand-up show at Caveat in New York City. A big thanks to Louis Dartnell for talking to us about how long one could live in a grocery store slash Target. Lewis's book is The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Civilization in the Aftermath of a Cataclysm. Thank you to the Japan Times, from whom we first learned about the woman saving her father from choking with a vacuum cleaner. Everything is Alive is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, Audrey Martovich, executive producer, and Yuri Lasordo, director of network operations. You can get in touch with us and find Everything is Alive t-shirts and much more at everythingisalive.com. And remember, dance like no one's watching. Dance like a Roomba pirouetting across your floor. Must feel good, right? Yeah, it feels really nice. I haven't I haven't watched a lot of ballet. Mostly I've seen Abigail practice and I I don't believe that she's talented. We'll see you soon. Radio Topia from Pete.